Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here today. If you haven't already heard, Apple recently released the brand new iPhone 15. And this one is made with titanium, which I'm sure will vastly improve your everyday life. But just a few days after that iPhone 15 went on sale, I was scrolling the news and saw an article speculating about the iPhone 16. When will it be announced? What features will it have? How much will it cost? That's the problem with technology. The moment you buy the newest, latest, greatest gadget to end all gadgets, something better comes along. Regardless of how much of an early adopter you might be, it's only a matter of time until your shiny new device, like the iPhone 15, is old news. It inevitably becomes outdated and obsolete. There's no sense of longevity, no feeling of permanence, nothing truly lasts. Well, last week in Hebrews 7, we talked about Jesus as our new, better, and great high priest. He's better than Aaron. He's better than the Levites. He's even better than the mysterious Melchizedek of Genesis 14. Now, that's all well and good, but I do have to ask, does there ever come a point when Jesus, like the latest, greatest iPhone, becomes obsolete? Will Jesus need to be replaced with something or someone else? Should believers ever find ourselves considering an upgrade? The answer is no. And today, the author of Hebrews shows us why. So open up to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we go further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the people in this room. New faces and old faces, friends and maybe strangers, but siblings in Christ. Thank you that so many people from so many different walks and backgrounds and experiences can gather together and have your son Jesus in common. So Lord, I pray that our singing today with one voice, our attention to your word, our communal prayers I pray that they would be honoring to you and helpful and good and comforting and convicting and encouraging for us. I pray for those in this church who are celebrating. I pray for those in this church who are grieving. We pray for things happening here. We pray for things happening elsewhere around the world. Uh, Lord, we look forward to your return when all the things that we see happening in this fallen world will be no more. And you will be all in all. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would find us faithful when that day comes. And I pray that you would be with us as we read Hebrews 8 through 10. It is a dense, rich passage that requires a lot of attention. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us 
ears to hear and eyes to see what your word has to say. Give us open hearts and open minds to the beauty and the glory and the power of what it is that you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would help us by the power of your spirit as we read your word. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, so to recap a little bit of last week, what makes Jesus so much different from all the other priests who came before him? We read in chapter 7, verses 26 through 28, a good summary. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So what makes Jesus so much better? Well, for starters, unlike all the other priests before him, Jesus is God. A phrase like exalted above the heavens tells us that much. Second, unlike all the other priests before him, Jesus is sinless. Just look at all the different ways the author stresses that. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. And third, unlike all the other priests before him, Jesus is eternal. We see that word forever at the end of verse 28. Previous priests died and had to be replaced. But Jesus died, rose from the dead, and still lives now. So if you put it all together, Jesus is the priest to end all priests. He can ensure that God's people enter into and remain in good standing and right relationship with God in a way that no one before him ever could have done. But if chapter 7 told us who Jesus is, our great high priest, then chapters 8 through 10 get into the nuts and bolts of what exactly he did. Specifically, we get much more detail about how Jesus accomplished our salvation. And the author focuses on three big themes. The first is what Jesus did. That is his sacrifice. The second theme is where Jesus did it. That is the sanctuary. And the third theme is why it all matters. You might call this the results. So we're not going to read such a large portion of scripture straight through. Instead, we're going to examine some key passages from Hebrews 8 through 10 that address each of those three themes. So let's start with the first one. What Jesus did. The sacrifice. Reading in Hebrews 8 verses 1 through 3. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, 
a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. No competent, self-respecting priest shows up without a sacrifice. Likewise, Jesus had to have something to offer if we're going to call him our priest. So what did Jesus bring? Well, to answer that question, it may help to ask another question. What did priests usually bring to sacrifice? We read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, that they would bring the blood of goats and calves. Chapter 9, verse 19, they brought the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop. Verse 25, the standard priest brought blood not his own. Blood not his own. But Jesus did something different, didn't he? Chapter 9, verse 12, he brought his own blood. Verse 14, the blood of Christ is what was sacrificed. Verse 26, Jesus brought the sacrifice of himself. Jesus' offering was unlike anything ever offered before him. Now, in some ways, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross mirrors the Old Testament day of atonement in Leviticus 16. But it was also quite different. On the day of atonement, Israel's high priest would enter the most holy place of the tabernacle or the temple. He would go in alone taking great precautions for his own safety. For example, he would take off his fancy clerical garb and wear simple linens instead, probably as a showing of humility on the one hand, but also acknowledging how messy he was going to get offering these sacrifices. The priest had to undergo special washing of his entire body, before he dared to enter that part of the tabernacle. And he would burn incense as he went, so that the smoke might prevent him from getting a fatal glance at God's holy presence. He would bring a goat and a calf, one for his own sin and the other for the people's sin. He would also bring in the blood of a bull, sacrificed before he entered. But in what may be one of the most important details about this Day of Atonement was that it happened annually. One day out of every year, the high priest would perform this ornate and solemn ceremony in order to make God and his people at one to atone for their sin. Year in and year out. But with Jesus' sacrifice, the day of atonement, the day when the sins of God's people are paid for and sent away 
That happened once and for all. Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate, sufficient, one-of-a-kind sacrifice for sin, past, present, and future. And just for the record, this was all part of God's plan. Long before he ever got to the cross, Jesus understands himself as a sacrifice. He says he is a ransom for others in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The night that he was arrested, Jesus said that his blood would be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins in Matthew 26, verse 28. All those poor goats, calves, and bulls of previous sacrifices, they didn't have a say in their fate. They were caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. But Jesus is no victim. His death is no accident. He went to the cross willingly in obedience to his father. And he served as both priest and And sacrifice, unlike any before or after him. So that's what Jesus did, the sacrifice. But that brings us to our second theme, which is where Jesus did it, the sanctuary. Look again at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, besides Jesus's ascension after he rose from the dead, what might the author be getting at here? During the day of atonement, sacrifices were offered in the tabernacle. And then in the temple. But Jesus offered his sacrifice somewhere else. Now you could respond, well, duh, it happened on the cross. And you would be exactly right. But there's also a little more to be said. The tabernacle was the nation of Israel's portable temple during their time before settling in the promised land. And you can read all about the construction of the tabernacle at the end of the book of Exodus. And while it may have been portable, and the word tent makes us think of something kind of flimsy, the tabernacle was anything but flimsy. It was an incredible structure filled with amazing things. If you don't believe me, just look at chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Eat your heart out, Indiana Jones. 
was an amazing place, this tabernacle. But then once Israel made themselves at home in Jerusalem, they built the permanent temple during the time of King Solomon. And this one wasn't moving. It was never going to go anywhere. It would stand forever, or so they thought. But tragically, that temple was destroyed around 586 B.C. God had warned Israel that he would use Babylon to discipline them for their sins, but they didn't listen. And the destruction of that temple, the destruction of that most holy place we just read about, was practically and existentially devastating. So while the tabernacle and the temple were not identical, they still had a lot in common. Both were understood as God's presence among the people. Both contained the most holy place. Both hosted the Day of Atonement sacrifices. Both served as the center of the nation's religious life. And both were temporary. In the end, the tabernacle and the temple were mere copies of the throne of the majesty in heaven. They were designed to reflect or portray God's throne. But they were never the real thing. Jesus did not offer his sacrifice in the tabernacle. He didn't offer it in the temple. He offered it on the cross. And as the author of Hebrews tells us, before the actual throne of God. Chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Jumping ahead to verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus did not offer his sacrifice in a building that imitated heaven. His sacrifice went up to heaven. He didn't offer it in a room that could never actually contain God. He did it before the real throne of God. And he didn't offer it in a tent that could be folded up and put away. Or a temple that could be torn down. He did it in a very different sanctuary. Before God himself. So theme one was what Jesus did. The sacrifice. Theme two was where Jesus did it. The sanctuary. But that brings us to our third and final theme from Hebrews 8 through 10. And that is why Jesus' better sacrifice in the better sanctuary matters. The results. Look back at Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better 
since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus ushered in a new and better covenant, one that God had promised generations earlier. We mentioned Jeremiah 31 last week, and it's quoted at length in Hebrews chapter 8. In this new covenant that Jesus has brought, obedience to the law of Moses is not the basis of one standing in God's family. It's faith in him. And it isn't limited to the descendants of Abraham. It's open to all who believe. But now look at Hebrews 9, verse 12. We read there that Jesus achieved an eternal redemption. Then in chapter 10, verse 4, we read this. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. In addition to a new and better covenant, Jesus ushered in a new and better forgiveness. Those day of atonement sacrifices, bulls, goats, and calves, were only good for a year. They had an expiration date. They were like putting a band-aid on a gaping wound. Not totally useless, but also not a real fix. But Jesus' sacrifice is effective for every sin, past, present, and future. Now, we still repent of our sin, but we do it with the confidence that in the eternal scheme of things, our sin has already been covered. Now look at chapter 8, verse 10. This is one of the quotes from Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then chapter 9, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? New and better covenant. New and better forgiveness. But now we see a new and better sanctification. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Christians can learn, grow, and obey God in a way that Israel simply could not. 
rather than fighting the same old constant losing battle with sin that Israel did in the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6 that sin no longer has to reign over us the way it once did. Because we have a new and better sanctification. And finally, chapter 9, verse 28. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, that's what the cross was for, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus inaugurated, and when he returns, will ultimately bring a new and better kingdom. When he comes, his kingdom will stand forever. As Revelation 21 tells us, there will be no need for a tabernacle or a temple there. No more sacrifices. The sheer presence of God himself will be more than enough to make up for a lack of a tent or a lack of a building. Now, I know that was like drinking from a fire hose, but that's what makes studying the book of Hebrews so challenging, but also so rewarding. So let's recap what we've learned in a bit more bite-sized form. Jesus, our better high priest, offered a better sacrifice in a better sanctuary with better results. You might even say that Jesus offered himself before God himself to reconcile sinners to himself. But what does this mean for us, practically speaking? Well, I think you should know that if you are a believer in Jesus, you are really, truly forgiven. We all know what it's like to do something wrong. Admit your fault and ask for forgiveness, only for forgiveness to be withheld entirely, offered half-heartedly, or maybe come with some strings attached. But our forgiveness from God is real. It is effective. It is solid. The sins that we think can't be forgiven... The sins that surely no one could forgive if they only knew about them can be and are forgiven through Jesus Christ. Second, if you are a believer in Jesus, you need to know that you are really, truly cleansed. You also know what it's like to wash an old, sweaty, beat-up shirt. No matter how many times you put it through the machine, how hard you scrub, or how much bleach you use, that shirt will never return to its original, bright, unstained color. Yeah, it's technically clean, but it's still very evidently stained. We often view ourselves the same way. Sure, we're forgiven through Christ, in a sense, but we're still damaged goods with skeletons in our closets. You need to know that your cleansing is real. 
Jesus is more than capable of washing you from even your deepest and darkest spots. And not just on the outside. Finally, if you are a believer in Jesus, you need to know that you are really, truly sanctified. Yes, we will still wrestle with sin after we come to know Christ. After we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And our spiritual growth will not always be a straight, consistent, upward line the way that we would like it to be. But you need to understand that you really can make progress in imitating Christ. You really can grow in holiness. You have been set apart for God. You've been given the spirit and your life can and should reflect that new identity. Because Jesus, our great high priest, offered a better sacrifice in a better sanctuary with better results. These chapters of Hebrews assure us that who Jesus is and what he did will never be outdated or obsolete. They assure us that we will never need to upgrade because nothing better or more effective than him will ever come along. Because his sacrifice wasn't a bull, a goat, or a calf. It didn't happen in the tabernacle or the temple. And its effects weren't temporary, skin deep, or the equivalent of treating the symptoms but not the illness. The sacrifice was Jesus on the cross for eternal salvation. So read Hebrews 8 through 10 and thank God. Celebrate the fact that your day of atonement, the true day of atonement, has already taken place. And this sacrifice by this priest in this sanctuary has real staying power. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And thank you for Hebrews 8 through 10. These linchpin passages of the entire book that tell us exactly what it is you've done for us through your son, Jesus. Lord, thank you that we don't have to offer any more sacrifices. We don't have to go into special, most holy places that only certain holy people can enter. And Lord, thank you that our sacrifice doesn't have to be repeated time and time again. That your body and your blood have no expiration date. But rather, this sacrifice that you've offered in this sanctuary has better results for us. Better forgiveness better covenant, better cleansing, better sanctification, all of it. Lord, we need to be reminded of these things so often because we're so tempted to forget just how great you are and just how effective your work really is. In times when we're discouraged, in times when we're frustrated, in times when we're insecure, we need to know who you are and what you've done. And Hebrews 8 through 10 are just 
wonderful sources of life in those moments. So, Lord, again, thank you for your sacrifice that you offered once and for all for us. I pray that we would have complete confidence in that sacrifice and that we would live in the light of that reality of who you are and of what you've done. We love you. We honor you. We thank you. As we said earlier in our service, we simply thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.